Kia ora, and welcome to Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, the podcast. During the lockdown, academics from the university's law faculty have been getting together online to discuss the legal implications of the New Zealand government's response to COVID-19. This is the second part of the series and was recorded on Thursday, 23rd of April. Welcome everybody to the second edition of our legal lowdown on the lockdown. I'm Jeff McClay, I'm a professor at the Law School at Victoria University of Wellington, and I'm joined this evening as it is now, on Thursday evening, with my colleagues, um, Dr. Dean Knight, Dr. Nessa Lynch, and Dr. Eddie Clark. And we're gonna talk about things that have interested us over the last few, few days in relation to the legal regime and the lockdown. But just to say why we're doing it at night, we were previously organized to record this at one o'clock today, we delayed for the press co- Prime Minister's press conference, and then we delayed for the Priest Commissioner's press conference, and then even more excitingly, we had a whole High Court decision on the legality of the lockdown. So this is literally breaking news day. Who knew so much could happen? We were all imprisoned in our, in our houses. So that's what we're gonna start off talking about today with Dean, is the decision person A against the Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, very, in very few cases, people have directly sued the, the Prime Minister. So, Dean, do you want to just tell us what happened in that case and what it was about and maybe what Justice Peters ended up holding? Yeah, no, very interesting case in our first judicial view on that, on legality. Although, as we see, I think a very um, broad brush and light-handed sort of uh, testing of the legality of the lockdown. So what we had is A, as a person, as it happened, um, someone serving a sentence of home detention applied for what's called um, a habeas corpus, which is an ancient way to test the, the lawfulness of detention. And he was trying to argue that his detention under the Section 70 order was unlawful. And he had a great conspiracy theory about um, uh, the Prime Minister being in cahoots with um, Stephen Tindall to try and d- destroy the economy and so forth. The vehicle he tried to to sort of test the lawfulness of the Section 70 order was this application for habeas corpus. The decision was issued by Justice Peters today, and um, two parts to it. Really interesting. She ruled in the first instance that this fellow wasn't detained by the Section 70 order made by the Director General, uh, because, and, and here she put aside one to side his sentence of home detention and took the Section 70 notice at face value and said that even though that restricted some of his, his movement, it still allowed for some freedom to, uh, to move outside for exercise in the supermarket and so forth. So ultimately that disposed of the case. There was no detention in terms of the terms required to trigger a habeas corpus application and, and that point failed. But she also went on by way of Oberton to discuss whether the uh, order itself was lawful. Um, and previously, we have raised the question about whether the order restricting us all to our homes uh, under Section 71F um, quite fits whether it's a stretch and whether there's a solid legal, legal foundation for that. And it was Oberton in the sense that she didn't need to decide the issue, but she was... If we can put it, she lent to the view, I think, that the order was valid. It could apply to all persons in New Zealand. It wasn't a power which was restricted just to uh, individuals or groups of people. 
and that the necessary preconditions of emergency epidemic were made out. So uh, what we have there is a, is a very brief once over lightly on the legality there. And interesting in the context of the habeas corpus applications, she said, really, that's not the type of application to raise the broader validity of the um, the, the, the lockdown restriction. That's better be raised by way of judicial review. So we've got a judicial review saying, obiter, not strictly binding, um, that the, the order is valid. Um, but I don't think it'll be the last word on the issue. Um, and, and I know that Eddie will come in and talk about how a judicial review might look. But I also think that this might, this question of the validity of the order will be front of mind of other bodies. And I, I suspect and, uh, parliamentary bodies like the Important Regulations Review Committee, which can also raise uh, question marks about the validity of secondary instruments, may have something to say on that on the next wee while too. Yeah, so basically, just to, to recap the power, if you like, that the Director-General used to force us all into quarantine is a power which is given to him to force into quarantine a person. And as I understand Justice Peter's decision, she has said that person means everyone in this particular context. So lawyers like to say singular includes the plural and plural includes the singular, and that's certainly been the, the case here. But Eddie might want to comment, just also to translate, for those of you who don't know much Latin, habeas corpus literally means, do you have the body? It's a very ancient writ. It's designed to basically get people out of jail who aren't supposed to be in jail. And that's why I suspect this person thought this was the appropriate um, thing to do. Now, Eddie just had some thoughts about what might have happened had this been a judicial review. You might just want to explain first, Eddie, what would be different about a judicial review proceeding in general, and then in particular in this case. So, I mean, a judicial review is, is filed slightly differently than a, than a habeas corpus, and it's more squarely about the legality of any powers being exercised rather than uh, a specific detention. Um, so it would be more squarely focused on the nature of the legal power than any justification for a particular detention. Um, so I think we might see something slightly different if this came up in a full judicial review, but... I think even more so, the timing is very much against this claim. Courts tend to be quite deferential to executive power um, in states of emergency because things need to happen quickly. There needs to be some latitude. And if uh, we get out of level four, which we are, into level three, and, and things get less uh, urgent and less worrisome, if people were to file judicial reviews then of some of the powers being exercised, I think we might see uh, slightly deeper scrutiny from the courts than we perhaps saw from Justice Peters here. And particularly, and Dean's going to talk in a little bit just about how the more nuanced rules that might exist under Level 3, which will po possibly be the ones that will end up being reviewed, since we're all going to be in Level 3 by the time people get to court next, I suspect. But before we get that, Dean and I have been talking a bit offline with our colleagues there was one of the really interesting legal train spotting issues this week was whose decision was it really in terms of whether we would stay in level four or go down to level three. And Jean, do you just want to tell, just outline what that issue is and what, what the statute says, and then maybe give you a, give a sense of what that, what the discussion behind all of that was. 
Yeah, so so I mean, it, it, it feels like old old news now that Monday's decision to to move to level three, but we've got to pick that in part to say there were there were two decision making streams in play in that in, in that case uh, when cabinet moved to uh, level three from next week. So we have the alert level framework, which is a non legal framework. Uh, it's separate from anything under the Health Act and the civil defence legislation as well, and it's intended to be vivid and explanatory to us about how. Um, uh, the circumstance and the settings we're likely to encounter. So it's a creation of cabinet and ministers have the ability to change that as they did uh, or announced on Monday. But the kicker comes because we've got the Health Act and these Section 70 notices uh, that are being issued, which are the hard legal rules and the enforceable legal rules which are actually uh, restricting our liberty. And that's powers vested in, 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 in medical, uh, medical officers of health and the Director General has the power over, the national power, if you like, to exercise those power. So, so we've got two decision-making tracks there. The, the Director General advised Cabinet on the changes to the lockdown. It's a little bit unclear about whether he's on the Zoom call or the all the call, because it's, it's, uh, I think the Prime Minister or the Director General said um, he wasn't there for the deliberation. But... Cabinet thankfully accepted his advice. So we've got this unity between these two decision-making tracks. But it's potentially awkward if there was disagreement. Because we think about Section 71F, it's a power which has the flavour of independence. It's vested in medical officers of health. It's a bit like constabulary powers, where enforcement powers, which we expect that those officials and agents exercise them separately from the political branch. So it would have been doubtful whether... I, well, I think I would doubt whether the cabinet could have directed the director general to amend the section 70 notice uh, to affect a level uh, a level three change. Because if you think about it, if, if the minister could, do, ministers could direct the director general about who could be isolated. You know, what's to stop the ministers directing the di uh, director general to quarantine Simon Bridges? We'd think that would be objectionable. But in this case where the Director General is making what I think is probably a, a type of or a breed of independent decision, it's probably lawful for him to take into account Cabinet's position on the lockdown or the alert level. So that way it feeds through. And I, I don't think that's objectionable, subject to the constraint that the uh, Cabinet shouldn't direct the Director General about, about those powers expressly. Cabinet always have the under, uh, the, the override ability to... Uh, take away the Director General's powers, and they can do that by revoking his general authority to do so, you know, revoking the epidemic notice in the state, a state of emergency, which his powers are, are conditioned on. But that's a pretty blunt um, instrument. And I guess when you think about those two decision-making tracks, it just reinforces that theme, that general theme we're coming to, that this regime is causing a lot of stress, I think, with the Health Act regime. It's putting under pressure. And there's a question of whether it remains fit for purpose for this type of regulation. Yeah, and I think for me, part of the tension ultimately was that the F power really seems to be an executive health decision-making power or almost a judicial power in some ways, whereas what it's actually being used of, used for at the moment is a lawmaking power, that effectively the Director-General, whoever we really think about it, has been making the law of New Zealand for the last two weeks. As a result of it being a lawmaking power, for me it makes every sense in the world that Cabinet, which is really the de facto supreme lawmaking decider in New Zealand, with 
parliament being the lawmaker, but cabinet's really the one that decides what policy is going to be enacted or what policy is going to be the law of New Zealand, gets to decide or gets to be involved in the decision. And also for me, it was a process matter because one of the good things that happens when something is a cabinet decision is that there's a lot of cabinet decision making process that comes with that. There's a whole system of who writes cabinet papers, how cabinet papers are written, what those papers are supposed to look like, um, how the debate occurs, who gets consulted, and that doesn't necessarily come into play when it's just the Director General of Health making the decision. Having said that, I can say that there's also another colleague of ours who Tina and I had a, almost a Twitter fight with over this particular point, who would say that this is just wrong, that in the end, the power is very clearly given to the Director General, and it was the Director General's job to exercise that power by, in, his, in this case, himself. But just very quickly, Dean, moving from that, just because we're going to move into level three soon, just very briefly before we get to Nessa, who's going to talk a bit about enforcement of level four and moving into level three, about the nature of the powers we're likely to see, which we haven't seen yet, really, in terms of level three. Yeah, I, I think um, we await with some anticipation, I think, about some of the legal detail here, because we know the principle, we know the shape of the new rules and expe expectations. Uh, we're, we're all going to rush out and get our KFC through our, through our drive throughs and the like. Uh, but the legal stuff we're yet to see. What the Director General has said, he signalled that he will be issuing a new Section 70 order to cover the new legal restrictions. He's extended the old ones until... I think it's Monday night at 11.59, but there'll be new orders to affect these new principles and new shapes of the expectation. That's a little surprising given sort of our debate that we've been having about whether it's legal and proper to be relying on those Section 70 powers for the heart of the lockdown. I think there was an opportunity there to rethink maybe the, the legal vehicle. I thought we might have expected a stronger and perhaps more democratic device like regulations being used. There's some trickiness about that because um, it's a little bit tricky under current legislation, but with Parliament coming back next week, they might have been able to seize um, and inject something into the Health Act that allowed the regulations to, to frame what are the, the, the lockdown controls. But putting that to one side for the moment, about how the rules are actually going to be drafted, I think here I have huge sympathy um, with um, parliamentary council's office or, 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 or crown lawyers who are trying to draft those new, uh, new rules because lockdown level four was easy because it was blunt and it was pretty tight and you could write rules and that was it and you know, it was easy to work out the, the, the couple of ex exceptions. But I think if we're actually going to try to craft rules to give effect to those principles and expectations, it's going to be a lot harder. How do we capture the idea of expanding a bubble, but only on a sort of a monogamous basis? Um, the regional and local expectations around rec recreation of have enlarged and things like that. And you know, we've got this, this question of businesses and the sort of expectations or these safety performance standards about so, uh, physical distancing within their business and so forth. And there's some other material around that. But when you're actually trying to create that and manifest that and, and express that in, in hard legal rules, it's going to be tough. I wonder if that means that we risk returning to our layers of rules, discretion and prime ministerial nudges, whether the rules... The hard rules might be cover most of the stuff or a lot of the stuff, but there'll be a long, a, a big emphasis on the just do the right thing type thing as well. And so we might be back into that realm of constabulary uh, discretion and that do the right thing as we are counselled to do so by the Prime Minister. And, and this is one of the things that 
many of us spend a lot of time thinking about the difference between rules and principles. And we've seen the advantages of rules in the last month. They're very clear, they're very crisp, but then at some levels, rules become incredibly arbitrary. We've all seen arguments in our own neighborhoods, probably even in our own families about the arbitrary nature of some of the rules. And that in itself begins to generate opposition. And so it'll be very interesting to see what the balance is in the new rules, whether they are just rules or whether they are more principles, whether there's some combination of principles explaining what the rules are supposed to mean in the complex, ambiguous uh, situation. And that's what we're looking forward to. Maybe that's what we'll talk about next week. Um, but I want to turn now to Nessa, who's been looking very much at the law enforcement side of things. She watched the police commissioner's press conference today. Um, yesterday, there was a police release figures saying there have been almost 4,000 breaches of uh, level, level four restrictions. And there have been a, quite a few, kind of a number of prosecutions, I think 300 or so. I just wonder whether you want to start off by commenting this or whether that's a lot or not very much. Yeah, thanks very much, Jeff. Um, so I was uh, scribbling furiously through the uh, press conference earlier because, uh, as you said, that's something that I've been thinking about quite a lot this week because um, Dean had got some numbers from the police media team yesterday. Um, but obviously we've, we've got some uh, hot off the press numbers from Police Commissioner uh, Coster. Uh, so it seems that we now, or this afternoon at least, had about four and a half thousand um, breaches. So it seems that the majority of those seem to be uh, related to the Health Act rather than the emergency management legislation. And um, so uh, Police Commissioner Coster reported about 470 prosecutions, um, nearly 4,000 warnings and about 131 youth referrals. Um, so even before he had given those numbers, um, I had been really interested in that question around how that compared with previous years. And so I'd had a look back in the police data on this exact date frame um, from last year. Um, and what we would have had um, last year is uh, around 11,000 um, proceedings. Um, so that is uh, proceedings rather than individual defendants and offenders. And that would include both the youth and the adults and, and formal and informal. And as well, we'd see probably per year about 70 to 80,000 prosecutions, criminal prosecutions. And um, so it's interesting as well for um, Police Commissioner Coster, I think, to confirm some of the anecdotal or preliminary thoughts we'd had about what types of crimes are occurring. And um, so he, when he spoke about uh, general criminal offences, um, we'd expect obviously that burglary, theft, assault and road policing are down. And um, we did see a spike in family violence offences in the first week, but that seems to have levelled off a bit. Um, so that is probably in, in line with what it, we'd expect. Um, so we're going to be really, really interested in reviewing the police data when it does come out at the end of the month. Um, I think criminologists will be having a field day with what essentially is a a giant live experiment on um, what we do under these type of conditions. But I suppose uh, something, uh, just going back to what my uh, what Dean was just saying, I mean, the, the level three enforcement is just gonna be really interesting. I mean, um, a lot of conversation amongst my friends has been what does low risk recreation in your local area mean? Um, so obviously low risk is a very subjective uh, concept. So uh, both Jeff and I like to ride mountain bikes and we've had some discussions around exactly what low risk is. Um, and, you know, you can say that, uh, as Police Commissioner Coster said in the presser today, you know, common sense policing, it'll be education, then warnings. But even if you are to be formally warned, which um, there is some murkiness around 
where those form of warnings that go on the police national computer, whether they can appear later if you are going through um, source, some sort of more extensive vetting process. So I think it is really important, absolutely when people are being prosecuted, but even at lower levels of intervention, that people are clear um, what the law is. Um, so I think, again, something that we are going to need to keep an eye on. I think there will be a lag in, obviously, our data around Crimes Act misuse of drugs, et cetera, um, because a lot of the machinery of the criminal justice system has been on hold. Um, and what's been going through the criminal courts has really only been the high priority and, and time sensitive matters. Um, and of course, one of the key pieces of information that we'll be looking for in the next couple of days is the updated protocols for level three from our courts. Um, so we've got quite extensive information about the level three situation at the moment, but um, just at the time of speaking, we don't seem to have got the public release of the level three protocols. I'm a great fan of um, principle-based drafting, but it doesn't necessarily work that well on the street. And just to explain the example, what Nessa would view as a, a low-risk trail on Ma at Macra Peak is probably what I would define as a high-risk trail. So you can just see what's going to happen at the Macra Peak bike trails. People explain what their what their risk profile is and how experienced they really are. But just in terms of some of the con other controversies, one of the controversies recently has been people spitting at police. And I know you had some thoughts about that as a, and what these people have been charged with and whether that yeah. would be appropriate. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, this has been one of the interesting criminal definitional issues that has come out um, uh, uh, in the past week or so. So um, looking at some of the criminal offences that have been uh, perhaps taken a bit more seriously uh, in the conditions that are in force at the moment. So um, uh, spitting obviously is an assault and unfortunately spitting at police officers and others is, is not too unusual. It's always going to be harmful and wrong behaviour and it always can form part of the actus reus of an assault charge. Um, we've also seen someone uh, charged or maybe sentenced already uh, in relation to aggravated assault involving spitting. So that was where um, somebody spat at the police officer in, when they were in the course of their duty, which gives it that aggravation. Um, but there was some media reports, um, I've seen it mentioned a few times about this somewhat obscure offence in the Crimes Act, um, Section 201, which is about infecting with disease. Um, but it's, it's really clear that this is a very specific offence. Um, and just yesterday I had a, a look through some of the uh, legal databases to see whether there was any examples of people being sentenced or any discussion about this offence. So I wasn't able to come up with anything. Um, I certainly would be interested if anyone's had, had experience um, with dealing with this offence. But the important thing about it is it does actually require that the person and produces or causes the disease in the other person. So that would really depend on the person being actually suffering diagnosed from COVID-19 um, and then spitting or coughing on somebody and that actually infecting the other person. So I don't see how that offense could be charged in these cases that we perhaps have heard about in the media where somebody has spat or, or threatened to spit on somebody saying that they might have COVID. So you would actually have to have COVID and cause the infection in another. So we do see some of these offenses um, used in relation to other infectious diseases, notably HIV, um, but the cases in New Zealand about HIV AIDS have almost always been charged under assault occasioning grievous bodily harm. So, so we've just seen a somewhat uh, obscure offense of the Crimes Act 
being used to deal with this situation where obviously the act of spitting becomes much more serious during a pandemic. And the last thing we talk to you with talk with you about is just the rights of people who are in detention because overseas there's been an enormous amount of controversy with people even being released from jail early because of the fears of COVID spreading inside prisons. We've had some controversy in New Zealand too from the other side of not letting not necessarily letting prisoners out. Could you maybe explain that? Yeah, so obviously, um, you know, this is a big issue, but I'll skim over it rather quickly um, in the interest of time. So obviously the rights of people in detention at the moment um, are, uh, you know, um, really important. And I know we've had some quips, including from our university leadership, that we're all under home detention at the moment. But um, I think that's that's not the best comment to make, as I think we're in very different situations to those um, whose liberty is restricted in that manner. Um, so as you say, Jeff, um, other jurisdictions, I know, um, speaking to some of my colleagues from New York, um, they've unfortunately had a high rate of infection in their jails. So we haven't had that at the moment. Um, but as you said, we have had some issues um, in the media around um, statements that the Solicitor General made around bail guidance. Um, and so uh, the Solicitor General had written to practitioners, and I understand um, the Solicitor General's office has written to practitioners again with a bit more clarification. Um, but there was um, a contention that perhaps uh, a person with COVID-19 or suspected case, that it could be a reason why bail was denied for that particular person. And so obviously there will be concerns around um, the suitableness of, or the suitability of bail addresses, um, especially where a vulnerable person um, was present or concerns about expanding the bubble. Um, but it's clear really that there isn't a legislative basis in the Bail Act um, to not grant someone bail on the basis of their health status, be that COVID-19 or another infectious disease. And so I know that a number of practitioners um, and other, a number of the defence bar have written back to the Solicitor General because um, obviously there are human rights implications there. And I think this might be veering towards a subject that I did discuss in the last update about um, the use of the criminal justice response where it is a welfare issue. Um, so the government has been providing appropriate housing for instance, for New Zealanders returning from overseas, um, and it, you know, the idea of not having a suitable address because of a particular health status or quarantine shouldn't, of itself, be a reason not to grant bail. Yeah, although one does wonder whether being put into one of these caravan parks that the government has rented is necessarily a suitable address for anything, but that's maybe a bit beyond our, our pay grade to debate. Just getting now to Eddie, who's got some really interesting thoughts about accountability. Just one of the things that I observed this last week was the sort of switch from everybody being on the same boat in terms of what the government was doing to an increasing discord about whether the government not had got the general direction right, but it got some of the particular decisions right um, in, in the journey. And I think Eddie's been doing some thinking about accountability, building on thoughts he had last week. So Eddie, what do we mean by accountability and how's it been playing out in the last week or so? So, in politics, quite often um, we see accountability uh, almost as as just another word for blame. Um, find someone that you can you can pin that on and and uh, eject them from the job that they're currently in. Um, but I think there are there are better ways to think about accountability. Um, what else can it mean beyond that ascribing blame? 
I'm an academic, so I'm going to do some sort of quite nerdy academic approaches to this. Um, there's a very interesting approach that's taken in public administration scholarship, um, talking about what perspective you want accountability to function from. And, and broadly, there are sort of three ways. Um, we can take it from a constitutional perspective that accountability is, is in, about ensuring that we stop concentration or excess of, of power um, or corrupt use of the power. There's a democratic perspective. We want a mechanism to link um, government action back to the democratic bodies in our system or to the public generally. Uh, or you can take a learning perspective, an idea that um, what we want from accountability mechanisms is, is to set up feedback loops to improve the performance of public bodies and, and make sure that the errors we're worried about don't happen again. And different accountability mechanisms will function better for some of those perspectives than others. So you, we do need to be clear when we're asking for accountability what we want out of each accountability mechanism. And we can see some of this with how some of our accountability mechanisms have functioned over the past week. Um, and government internal management is a mechanism for accountability. And, and we saw that with the um, Aisha Verrill review of um, contact tracing. That was a decision taken by Ministry of Health Management to contract someone to um, audit their um, approach to contact tracing. So just to stop you there, Eddie, yeah. one of the interesting things there is that the existence of that report for a few days became a political hot potato because the report had been completed. And again, I was asked this morning when the doctor appeared in front of the select committee, she was asked very clearly by um, the chair, I think it was, when did you produce the report? When did you give it to the minister? When did you give it to the department? Mm. Why did it not get released to us for 10 days after that? And so there was an attempt to really say that something wrong had gone on there. And I just thought you, whether you had any thoughts about the, the fact that it wasn't released for 10 days or the call that it should have been released earlier. I mean, I think this is one of those issues that you can reasonably have different views on. Um, but my personal view is that the timing was swift um, in terms of when these documents typically get released. Um, it was a, a document that they were basing cabinet decision-making on, uh, and it is almost unheard of for us to get documents that cabinet is going to consider before they have in fact considered them. It came out the same day as the cabinet decision uh, that was based on it. Um, I think at very least reading between the lines, it seems that deficiencies in contact tracing are one of the reasons that uh, level four was extended for a week. Um, so they were relying on that report in part to make that decision. Um, and, and I don't really think you can argue that it ought to have come out before that. Although if you're taking a radically transparent position, you might say we're in a completely different environment. Everything should come out immediately. Um, but I also think that there's some inertia to government and some of these things just take time. And in fact, we saw sort of these accountability mechanisms functioning in that committee asking those questions yeah. that, that Dr. Verrill appeared before the committee and spoke to her report um, and was asked about that timing. So even if, even if we do accept that the timing was something of a failure, um, there was the ability to interrogate that, which is in itself a good thing. And I saw today too that the, the Auditor General has released a, 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 a letter to the committee saying that the Auditor General's office is very keen to make sure that proper government protocols are being used in relation to all of this money that is being spent. I found that really interesting. Um, sort of 
with that VERIL report, um, you can sort of see that the learning perspective accountability I was talking about, that this is about improving the processes and this is the focus um, of it. And some of that democratic perspective by having her come and speak to her report before a democratic body. Similarly, we've got the democratic perspective from the Auditor General writing to the committee about uh, what his plans um, are in relation to holding the government processes and expenditure to account. So there's a specific one here, um, which is a look at the systems for distribution and acquisition of personal protective equipment in the health sector. So the Auditor General has said that uh, his office is specifically going to look at that. But more generally, um, they're going to do their bread and butter, which is look at expenditure. And, and he makes the point in that letter that a very unusually broad spending delegation was given to the executive by parliament uh, to deal with COVID-19, which means that there is a lot of potential for abuse uh, or error, and the Auditor General is well-placed to investigate those things uh, as they get back to normal. And that, bringing in another of our accountability perspectives, is the constitutional perspective, making sure that the power and, the, and this public money is not being misused. Now, just Eddie, if you want to just contrast quickly for us, because this week we also saw calls from very well-known lawyer, former, former broadcaster Linda Clark, in a newsroom article for a not right now, and she was very clear not right now, but for a public inquiry, she thought maybe a Royal Commission or maybe just an ordinary inquiry. It's not clear that those are really that different in, in effect, but she thought there should be some big wig inquiry, I suspect, into, into the, how the government has behaved generally. How do you see that in relation to your models of accountability? And what can we hope to get from that that we might not get from these internal methods? I mean, I think it's, it's perfectly reasonable to be calling for an inquiry um, here. The, the Royal Commission versus public inquiry thing is essentially uh, without consequence. It's, it's a technical point about where the source of their authority comes from, but the substance of what they can do is identical. Um, if you've got a big issue, they usually put a big fancy person in charge of it, um, and it, usually a judge or a former prime minister or a judge and a former prime minister, one of our current um, <laughs> inquiries um, has that format. Um, and they have a lot of powers um, to look into stuff um, and they can find some useful things out and make some recommendations. They can lay blame, um, although not in a criminal sense, but I think quite often the most use utility you get out of them is in learning what went wrong and if we can deal with it better in the future. There's an open question as to whether they are in fact better than our standing accountability organizations like the Ombudsman's Office, like the Auditor General, like Parliament and their select committees at digging this stuff out and whether the expenditure and time in fact gives you better results. Um, but it's sort of a bit like a security blanket in New Zealand. We, we like inquiries when things have been bad and have gone wrong. Um, inquiries make us feel better about potentially something being done. And, and there are results on this. The, our current um, workplace safety law is as a direct result of, of recommendations of the Pike River Inquiry. Um, there have been changes to the building code as a result of the Christchurch Earthquakes Inquiry. Um, so there could be benefits to this sort of thing, um, but I don't think it's necessarily exclusive to inquiries that, that we get those results. Yeah, and I think that's important to look, it's always important to ask what you want from something. And so, I just worry sometimes that when we ask for inquiries, we're not really wondering what, 
what we really want these people to produce from us, whether it is account what kind of accountability we want to get mm. here. Sometimes we do want to blame people. I suspect that was partly the Christchurch earthquake inquiry was about blaming people, though, as you said, it did produce some changes. It just worries me that we sometimes overhype the ability of people who are completely outside the government to understand how government can change and what the imperatives were on the bureaucrats who made particular decisions and how those behaviours can change. And sometimes for me, high court judges in particular are not the best people, if I can say that heresy, to determine what actually <laughs> is the best way of changing a bureaucracy to make it better for the next time. But that's what we had thought were our thoughts. And what we had done also this week was Eddie set out on Twitter a, a request for questions, and we'll do so again next time to build a bit of interactive. This is just at the very last bit of our thing. We'll just deal with a couple of questions that were sent in by Eddie's Twitter account. Um, so Dean, this is your legal train spotter thing about emergencies. Are we actually still in a state of emergency? And are we seeing any more use of the emergency powers in the um, civil emergency legislation? Um, re really interesting um, that we've had, I think it's the fourth renewal of the state of national emergency. We had a really good briefing from the controller um, and director um, today on the use of her powers. So we're still in that state of national emergency, but we t I think we spoke last time about how government is perceiving that the civil defence stuff is kind of the backup. It sits behind and fills the gaps that can't be filled through the Health Act. Um, and and I'm really positive thing is that the, um, the controller has been um, uh, giving the uh, cabinet or available in the cabinet office as a, as a memo which sets out in the appendix all the use of her powers under the civil defense act you know apparently it's a hotbed of illegality civil defense illegality in taranaki who knew because that's where she's using her powers to direct people to stop businesses or to close roads and to move along freedom campus but it's not the heart of the regime um, government has a preference for for seeing this as a health problem and using the health act powers I think we'll keep that that civil defence emergency uh, state of emergency will keep ticking over because it's got some useful legal uh, yeah. tricks and tools um, for um, to be relied on. So again, goes back to the design of legislation that we're a little bit more of a jigsaw puzzle in terms of our legislative framework here. Yeah, and that's going to be a really interesting question going forward when we revise all of these laws over the on the other side of all of this as to what public health legislation looks like versus what civil emergency legislation looks like. And maybe we can think a bit better about the crossover between the two of them than perhaps we've got at the moment. And then the final question for you, Eddie, um, the questions we've got for Nessa were already pretty much covered in what she's already talked to us about. But just in terms of courts, what do we think courts are going to do going forward? Because lawyers like courts, I'm sure there are some lawyers thinking about what courts will do. There might be some judges wondering what they're going to be asked to do. What do you think judges and courts add to this accountability mechanism framework that you were talking about? The tendency is um, for lawyers to think that, that courts and judicial review are the great administrative law mechanisms for making sure that accountability happens. Whether that's in fact the case, um, I think is up for debate. Judicial review is extremely expensive. It's quite difficult to, for people to access. And quite often it's people with resources and an axe to grind um, who end up taking judicial reviews. It doesn't look at the systemic issues. It reacts to specific incidents where power might have been misused. 
Um, and as I mentioned earlier, in the midst of an emergency, courts are, are quite reluctant to intervene on that on that front. Um, but as we come out of the extreme end of, of the emergency, um, I'm sure there are some spots that look thin around the edges of some of, of the legal authority. Uh, I'm sure as we get to the principle-based rather than rule-based approach in level three, um, I'm sure there'll be some things that people will take judicial reviews and, and if the government exceeds its legal power, it should be um, held accountable by the courts. The, I was just going to say the other thing that we might see see coming, which Jeff, you would know better than I, I think we might see some financial claims against the government um, as well. Couldn't possibly comment about anything relating to financial claims against the government. But um, just to get back to accountability, because actually those of us who read lots of court cases know that it's actually often prisoners who are seeking accountability through the courts um, for various things that have gone on, either at the start of the detention, at the end of the detention, or the during of the detention. So just, just finish up with what Nessa might think about how those people who are currently detained can bring some accountability to what's being done to them. Yeah, thank you, Jeff. So, so I addressed that specific question around the rights of people on bail, but obviously there's a lot more to say around people in detention, and, and I'll just pick up on some very quick points there. Um, so I know that advocacy groups and the Chief Human Rights uh, Commissioner have raised concerns around restrictions on people in detention at that time, at this time, and that includes not only people who are sentenced, but people on remand, um, the youth justice population, and of course there's a whole group of people who are compulsory confined under mental health legislation or um, care and protection children who are in uh, secure residence. So it, it's not just people in prison, there are wider forms of people in detention as well. And um, so we've seen some concerns around um, some aspects like the mixing of sentenced and remand prisoners and some reports of prisoners being locked down for very long periods of time. And obviously, I suppose much like people who are out in the community, but um, has more implications from them around not being able to access some of the face-to-face -face services like psychological counseling and that that are so important for people um, in prison. So um, we know that the uh, OPCAT, the Convention Against Torture um, inspections that are run out of the Ombudsman's office um, and the Children's Commissioner who holds the mandate for inspection of youth justice and other children um, facilities, they are considered essential work, um, but obviously maybe a bit constrained in terms of the face-to-face -face that they can do. So um, that's a really important accountability mechanism, I think, as well. So um, it will be very important for those inspections and so on to continue. Right, so probably we've um, strained the patience of anybody who's still watching us after longer than we thought we were going to be talking to you. So once again, thank you for joining us. The plan is that forever long as COVID is with us, which I suspect is going to be with us for a while, unfortunately, we will try and do some kind of legal update in this format, every record on Thursday to aim to release on Friday morning sometime. Um, so look out for more of these as we go forward. The faculty will also be doing some more um, particular subject matter focused ones and but otherwise, thank you very much and thanks to the participants. Thanks, colleagues. To stay up to date with our latest podcasts, subscribe using your preferred podcast provider. Thank you to the Corky School of Music alumni Kenyon Shanky and Stephen Patton for the use of their music. From Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, Haere Rā.